This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is part of an ongoing series about working with trauma, and our topic tonight is working with the body after trauma. My guest is Pat Ogden. Pat is a pioneer in somatic psychology and the founder-director of the Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute, an internationally recognized school specializing in somatic cognitive approaches for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and attachment failures. Pat's a clinician. She's a consultant. She lectures internationally. She's the co-founder of the Hakomi Institute. She's, she teaches at, the, at Naropa University in Colorado. And Dr. Ogden is also the first author of a groundbreaking book, Trauma and the Body, a Sensory Motor Approach to Psychotherapy. She's in the midst of writing her next book, The Body as Resource, Sensory Motor Interventions for the Treatment of Trauma. Pat was also my teacher 11 years ago, and I'm truly honored to have you as my guest, Pat. Welcome to Safe Space. Thanks, Anne. Pleasure to be here. You know what? I cannot hear you, so I'm just going to turn up my headphones because the sound is so faint. Let me just see. Oh. Say another again. Can you hear me now? We're Hello? having some interesting technical challenges tonight. Are you there, Pat? Yes, I'm here. Okay, great. Although the sound quality is very bad in my headphones, it may just be my headphones. I'm going to proceed. Yeah, you're coming in intermittently. I am, huh? Okay. Yeah, now it seems better. <laughs> my sound engineer is freaking out through the glass, but she's working it. She's pressing buttons. She's moving levers. I'm trusting that this will work out. Okay, well, I can speak up, too. Okay, great, and I'll lean into the mic also. So, Pat, I want to start out by asking... You know, I know that you've taught dance, you've taught yoga, you have a long history of work with the body. How did you realize that working with the body was such an important part of healing from trauma? It grew out of teaching yoga and dance at Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital in the um, the early 70s. Um, and what I noticed was that the patients who did those classes with me seemed to get better more quickly. And that really sparked my interest uh, as, as to just the role of the body. Because in those days, nobody was talking about body work or movement work, at least not in my circles. Um, so that, that was really the beginning. And so how did you, what did you start telling yourself? I mean, back at that time... What were you thinking about why it might be so important? I was thinking that movement was a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) That pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Any kind of movement. And the yoga that I taught, of course, was more meditative, more quiet. And then I taught dance to adolescents. Um, And in those days, line dances uh, were really popular. So we learned line dances. And... I really thought it was the movement and how movement also supports social engagement. People started relating to each other. Uh Aha. So these were people who maybe weren't relating to each other so much beforehand. Didn't seem to be, no. Uh So, you know, I've read a lot of your stuff and your book and I've been in, in things that you workshops that you've taught and one of the one of the terms that you use that I know is important in this field of working with the body and trauma is bottom-up processing and what do mm-hmm. you mean when you say that you know I can't hear you aha okay I heard bottom-up processing and then you wanted me to talk about that yeah what do you mean by that can you okay, hear me well you can think of it in different ways if 
if you think of it in terms of the brain and the triune brain that was pioneered by Paul McLean in the in the 80s, he delineated the reptilian brain, which is the seat of our instincts, the limbic brain, which is the next level up, which is also called the emotional brain, and then the, the neocortex, which is our thinking brain. And when I learned psychotherapy in social work school, I learned how to work with the thinking brain. I learned a lot about insight, um, problem solving, nothing about the body. Uh, so we would call the work with the insight and the problem solving more of a top-down approach as opposed to a bottom-up that, that directly addresses like action sequences that are instinctual. Uh, therefore, having to do with the lower levels of the brain. Um, so, when you act, say when you say an action sequence that's instinctual, what's an example of that? An example would be in trauma, we have animal defensive responses: fight, flight, freeze, and a feigned death response that all mammals have, and those. Defenses have particular actions that go with them. Obviously, fight, you know, response is aggressive, usually having to do with the arms. Flight, a fleeing response having to do with the legs. And what happens in trauma is that those more active responses that mobilize the body for action are often not effective. If you think of child abuse, the child can't fight back and they can't run away. Mm -hmm. So they go more towards immobilizing defenses where their body gets might get tight and frozen or collapsed and lethargic. Yes. And so um, if you're going to work with someone in a bottom-up way with their body, so maybe let's take an example of what you just said. So somebody has that kind of collapsed lethargic immobility, um, mm -hmm. how would you work with that? What would be a way that, that you would approach that? Well, here's an example from a patient who had that kind of response because that's what worked during her child sexual abuse. Um, as she, well, whenever we are about to make an action, there's what's called a preparatory movement. Like if you watch animals like my cat, before it makes the leap for the bird, you can see its whole body make this preparatory movement. Yes. So we're looking for these preparatory movements that indicate a more empowering defensive response. Like with, with this woman, as she started to talk about the abuse from her father, her fingertips lifted. And that turned out to be a preparatory movement for an action that never got to happen when she was little, which was a lifting of her hand and a pushing him away. So what I'm what I'm sensing is that you are noticing. You're just you're watching so mm -hmm. closely. So you're looking for these little, almost like impulse move, these preparatory movements that might be just a tiny gesture. That's right. Uh -huh. I'm watching, and clients learn to watch their bodies and trust their bodies and believe in their bodies again. And it's so striking. So here we're talking about something that was years ago, maybe decades ago, mm -hmm. but her body is still making that little preparatory movement that somehow got truncated 
back originally. That's right. And see, that's bottom-up processing. Like, how does the body process information? Like, when she thinks of the abuse, her fingers would move, but her body would collapse. So what we did, as her fingers started to lift up, you know, I asked her to, to notice that and to feel what her body wanted to do. Um, and her body wanted to push. And as soon as she started to make that motion against the pillow that I held, she started to feel some strength and some empowerment. That's so striking. And does it ever happen? So, you know, if we're imagining her as a child where she couldn't push away, her arms were held down or for whatever reason, does it, does the adult in therapy ever feel like, okay, I want to push, but then when you invite them, they find that they just can't? I mean, that the collapse actually persists? Well, every client's different, you know. Um, the collapse, they might need what we call another somatic resource first. Like I'm thinking of another patient uh, whose spine really was just sagging and her head was down. And when she tried to push... I mean, if, if listeners can imagine this, like your whole body, your chest is collapsed, you're just sunken, and try to make an assertive gesture of pushing something away, it's not going to be effective until she first lengthens her spine and has a more upright posture, and then that push is much more accessible. So we work with different somatic resources, like lengthening the spine is great one. Grounding is another one. So on. It's such a wonderful sort of different way of thinking, Pat, because I'm, I'm trained as a psychiatrist in, the, in much more sort of a top-down approach, using, you know, very much valuing words mm-hmm. and certainly trained to focus on feelings. So when, when I think about the image you're sort of painting for me of this person who's trying to push, but she's sort of collapsed, it's like this defeated quality to this pushing, yeah. you know, where I would go... It, is would be sort of around how to encourage her verbally, how to help her feel strong. And so when you're talking about resourcing, you're really still working with the body about how to help her spine lengthen. Well, that's right, because we're thinking in a way of how the body and the mind go together. And, you know, you can encourage somebody to have more self-esteem and feel strong, but if they have a body posture and a movement that doesn't support that, the posture is weak and ineffective and the arms just hang limply, no matter how much they tell themselves it's different and I'm strong now and I can push away, the body doesn't speak the same language. The body's saying I'm weak and ineffectual. Yeah, so, so I mean, it's such, this is such a beautiful example. So here, there you are, Pat, you're working with her, you see that. How do you help her lengthen her spine? Well, I might um, just ask her to lift, like, I'm, well, there are different ways. You know, I might just ask her to straighten her spine, and what, what does she notice? I mean, this approach... It's hard to make um, generic answers because the, the yes. approach is very specific to a patient, but it's very mindful. Like I might say, you know what, what happens if you just lengthen your spine? And I'll do it with her. Uh-huh. And she'll be watching me lengthen, you know, lengthen my spine. And, you know, her mirror neurons are firing as she sees me lengthen. And she's learning on a brain level from that example 
and she starts to, you know, she starts to, to, to lengthen her spine, and then I get a report of what happens. What does she notice? Does she feel better or worse or stronger or not? So you, you bring up a really interesting subject, this question of mirror neurons, which I, I know is a very big topic in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, but why don't you tell me a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, just very simply as it applies to body psychotherapy, when my client sees me make a movement or a gesture, the neurons in her brain fire as if she's also making that gesture. So it's priming her to make that same movement. I see. So that so that's so helpful. So just being able to watch your body do it kind of gives her access to some more possibility in her own body. Yes. I wonder if that's why people like doing yoga with a group as opposed to alone with their, you know, by themselves. Is that because there's some enormous power in being part of other bodies doing the same movements? I think that's true. And you watch your teacher do the yes. asana and, and you mimic it. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and I'm talking to Pat Ogden about working with the body in therapy for trauma. So I want to ask you about another piece of work that I know you do a lot with, which is sequencing or sensory motor sequencing. Uh-huh. And I wonder, rather than me sort of explaining what I mean by it, why don't you tell me, what, what do you mean by that, and, and how is it important? What we mean by the term sensory motor sequencing is that... We're working with the effects in present time of past trauma on the nervous system. So as we're working with a patient, they get more dysregulated. As they begin to talk about or remember their past trauma, they get hyper-aroused, for example, and might start to feel panic. Um, I'm thinking of... of, uh, a veteran that I worked with, as he remembered his combat, he started to feel panicky and his arousal started to escalate um, and he started shaking. Okay, So sensory motor sequencing then is a term that we use for just staying with the body and letting the body process that dysregulated arousal in, in, in a way that only the body can. So I asked him to just Feel his body, feel that trembling, feel the panic as body sensation, and just notice what happens as he stays with the trembling. Um, so he just tracks it with his with his mind, watches it, and it sequences or moves through the body and then gradually settles down. And we have no scientific research, you know, to prove the efficacy of sensory motor sequencing, but we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that indicate that it helps recalibrate a dysregulated nervous system. Uh, you know, it brings to mind, in my medical training, watching people in the recovery room after surgery, mm-hmm. and almost all of them, mm-hmm. shiver, you know, shake That's right. when they wake up. Yeah. And um, usually they're brought a heated blanket to kind of try to get them to calm right down. Yeah. <laughs> and, there, and there's sort of almost no awareness that the shaking may be part of their recovery. That's right. That's, that's very well said. I, I had a patient once. She had had many, many surgeries, and she was about to have another one. And she had learned sensory motor sequencing and, and felt the benefits of it in her own body. And so she told her medical staff 
that she wanted to shake and she wanted them to let her shake. And she reported to me afterwards that she recovered faster from that surgery than she had before. Isn't that wonderful? I remember seeing videos of animals in the wild shaking after they uh, sort of they just escaped from a chase situation or something. That's right. Yeah, it's a very natural physiological response. And it's such a shame that, I mean, I think it makes us feel afraid because it feels so physical, it feels so out of control, so That's animal. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, I had I had one uh, one patient. She started to shake, and and she said exactly that. She said uh, it feels out of control, and that's something I don't do very well. She didn't like it. No, <laughs> no. Our whole culture is about being in control. Right. <laughs> right. So and that's bottom up processing. It's just letting the body process process it rather than trying to analyze it or even uh, uh, emote about it. Uh, one of the things I was struck by in, in some of your writing was that idea that, in fact, when the body is sequencing like that, going, releasing this kind of trembling and shaking, the story, the person may not even need to be in touch with what the story is or the, yeah, the narrative. that's, that's uh, important. I consider the value of the story lies in catalyzing unmetabolized responses of the body and once the story has catalyzed those responses we don't need the story we just stay with bottom-up processing Which and is, then we come back to the story right because so again it's sort of so counter you know i work with many people who have survived trauma and or they or they think they have and they don't know and they can't remember and they they long to know the story yeah so the story becomes this big focus of wanting that clarity uh-huh. And it strikes me that part of the hope of what you're saying is that even in the absence of specifics, it is possible to help the body recover and heal. That's right. Because we're never working with the story. We're only working with the aftermath of what happened, you know, that still lives in the person's body and emotions and, and, and beliefs. And, you know, I mean, there's two ways you can think of the story. You can think of the verbal story, but you can also think of the story the body tells. And when a client walks into my office, his or her body speaks loud and clear. The way they walk, the way they move, the way they hold themselves, the way they breathe, that that tells a much more important story about the effects of what happened to them. So in other words, if you're, if you're trained, if you're a trained observer, we're all walking open books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's not I that you have to true. be, you know, the age-old joke about the shrink can read your mind. It's really that you can read their body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, if you just go to a mall and look at the way people walk, it's, they're so different. Everybody's so different, and it it tells a story. One of the things that I, I was so intrigued to learn from you, Pat, many years ago, and again in reading your stuff in preparation for tonight, is that the body not only reflects the story or the experience, but the but the posture of the body, the way we hold, inhabit our bodies, also shapes how we take in new experience. Yes. And t- right. I want, I'd love to hear you say more about that. Well, there's so, there's so many examples of how we process information 
through the way that we move. Uh, the example we've been using of, of, of you know, somebody who's very collapsed, they take in the, somebody, if, you, if they're collapsed, they take in the world very differently. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying it on right now. I'm just standing up and collapsing my body and everything changes. You don't have the range of motion in your neck. Uh, you don't have the energy to meet the world. It's very different from an erect posture that is full of, you know, alignment and integrity, physical integrity. Right. I remember even thinking, you know, it sort of affects the the kind of information that you can even notice. If you're really collapsed, you know, your gaze is downcast. Yes. I mean, it sort of even shapes all of what you can take in and see. That's right, yeah. There's a wonderful Charlie Brown cartoon where he walks in that posture and he says, you know, the worst thing you can do if you're depressed is to stand up straight and hold your head up because you'll start to feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's sort of, I mean, that is a question that I had is sort of how much can conscious choice about the way we hold our body I mean, how easy is this to fix, I guess is what I'm asking. Like if a person is, maybe let's talk about the opposite for a minute. Say somebody is in that incredibly constricted, tight place. Mm-hmm. So the opposite of collapse. Um, how much, you sort of, if they start to become aware, oh, okay, this is really shaping my experience. I don't want to keep doing that. Um, can consciously trying to relax your body really work? Is it that simple or is it there more to it than that? No, it's not that simple at all because the body and the mind go together. You know, it all, it all is of a piece. And I discovered this also in the 70s uh, in, in my own therapy, actually, because I was in psychotherapy. Um, and, but then I was also seeing a rolfer, and actually I became a rolfer. And rolfing works with aligning the body, right? Mm-hmm. And I would be working with my rolfer, and psychological issues would come up, and he would say, "Oh, well, you know, talk to your therapist about it." <laughs> but then yeah. it wouldn't be there when I, you know, when I went to see my therapist. So th- it was really a lesson for me about how in my mind, important it is to work with the mind and the body simultaneously. Yeah, so you're actually really tying them together. Really tying them together. Yeah. So you're changing on all all levels of information processing. Like if we go back to the triune brain, the neocortex um, representing thinking and the limbic brain representing emotions and then the reptilian the sensory motor level, we're looking at a real integration of all those three levels. Yes. So that's what I was going to ask you. I want to, again, I guess, come back to this, the collapsed example. So there you are to where we started at the beginning. She's remembering this abuse. She lifts her fingers. You help her start to actually push and use the strength in her arms and so she does that with you, and she's able to kind of like complete that defensive action that never got to happen. Mm-hmm. And and then after that's happened, does she only need to do that once? Like sort of what happens after that? It's highly individual. I know. It's, it's, I want to know the answer, individual. though. <laughs> I beg your pardon? I, I'm teasing you. I, of course it's true. I guess what I mean is what can someone hope for? Like if they're able to do that to re-engage this kind of empowered physical 
you know, people who take model mugging or self-defense classes, they, they're they able to access this kind of fight-back energy that they couldn't use in the moment. Well, if they can access that and their body starts to shift and they work with the belief systems that have been around not being able to stand up, you know, being abused not being able to defend yourself, if they work with all those uh-huh. elements, things can really change. I know? see. So it has to, so, so that's really what you're saying is they work with their, their physical ability to do it, but they also work with their beliefs. Their beliefs that and they their can't. emotions. Yes. And often, I mean, the emotions of anger, but often grief. Yes. Often tremendous grief. One patient said, some, she said, what did she say? She was an older woman. And she said, I've waited 50 years to feel like I can stand up for myself. And she cried because um, she'd wasted so much time, you know, not being, not being assertive. And she felt so grief-stricken about yes. that. So the emotional processing is really important, too. It sounds, that sounds so right. So we're, we only have a few more minutes. And I, I, I guess I want to ask you... Um, if we, if you could walk me through again, I understand that everyone's different, but with the the example of the very tight, constricted person, because I'm curious to know, is it again the same thing where you start looking for those preparatory movements, or how do you approach working with someone like that? Well, I'm thinking of uh, someone I worked with a while back who came for, actually, for anger management. Um, Mm. She had dysregulated anger. She would get very angry at the drop of a hat. She was afraid she was going to really abuse her own child. Uh, And her body was very tight and constricted. So she didn't have to work with empowering action because she was very assertive. But she had to work with sequencing the action through her body in a considered, mindful, and integrative way rather than an explosive way. So we, we also worked with pushing, but we worked with it very mindfully and very slowly in an integrated fashion and she, so that she didn't experience it as being out of control and she didn't experience her, her movement as volatile and damaging. That sounds so powerful. So when you say working with it in an integrated way, what does that mean, integrated? That means that she's aware of her body, and instead of just lashing out, she's feeling the sequence of the movement through her body. Through We were working standing through the bottoms of her feet, through her legs, through her back, coming out her arms, so that she's not like dissociating just into a rageful part of herself. But but integrating the movement and the part of herself that was so volatile uh, mm-hmm. at the same time. Pat, it sounds so wonderful. I, f- I hope this interview has been an appetizer for people. Because mm-hmm. I listen, that's how I'm feeling right now, is sort of hungry for more. I want to thank you so much for being my guest, Pat. It's oh, really a welcome. pleasure to have you. And if so- to speak with you again. And if someone wants to access your website and find out more about you, what's what's the address? It's sensorymotorpsychotherapy.org. 
That's great. And the name of the book, again, is Trauma and the Body, A Sensory Motor Approach to Psychotherapy. Pat Ogden, it's been a pleasure to have you. This is Dr. Ann on Safe Space. But talking to Dr. Pat Ogden about working with the body in psychotherapy after trauma. If you'd like to listen to this show it's in, in its entirety or send it on to a friend, please visit the website, safespaceradio.com. You can also email me there if you want to request a future topic. Uh, coming up next week will be Dr. Bessel van der Kolk talking about brain research in uh, treatment of trauma. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks. But the last thing is to thank Jen Hodgson for the sound and the many technical challenges tonight. Thank you so much. Maurice Lennon for the music and Neil McKenty for consulting. Here comes Allison. Thank you.